Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN and ESPN.com. Joining me, Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood for Last Dance Mondays, brought to you by Coors Light on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. Last Dance Monday is brought to you by Coors Light right here on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Glad that you're in with me as we review the documentary that was The Last Dance, one of the best sports documentaries that uh, I've seen for sure. And it hits home for me as a Southsider, um, growing up watching the Bulls, being a Bulls fan as a kid. It was great to be able to watch and go back to see the greatest run for any team in Chicago, the Chicago Bulls. And for those that didn't live that era, you were able to take a look at what happened uh, in that documentary. But if you lived it like I did, if you're a um, baby boomer or a Gen Xer and you're able to see in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, watching that championship, it was nothing like it. It's nothing like a champion in Chicago. And it, it was great to go back and see Michael Jordan, even though it's a different Jordan than we have seen in the past as far as him being candid. I'd rather have an honest athlete say that I couldn't care less what anyone thinks of me or what what he thinks of my team. I'm just going to try to win to the point where Jordan was emotional when it came to even talking about winning and what it meant to be a champion. I understand that there are so many that are sensitive now. Certain things you say, certain things you do, that people become sensitive and they don't like it. And for me, I'm glad that Jordan is the way he is in that. You know what? He's just going to continue to break eggs until he gets that championship omelet <laughs> in so many ways, right? Got to break some eggs if you're going to make an omelet. And that's exactly what he did. You heard him getting on players. It didn't affect me because the end result was a championship. And so that's what resonated with me the most. And the journey for Jordan and the Bulls to finally get to the mountaintop six times in eight years. The Bulls should have had an opportunity to be able to win a seventh championship. Whether they're going to win it or not against the Spurs or whatever Western Conference team in that shortened season in 99, who knows. But it was taken out of the hands of Phil Jackson and the players because of Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf. I don't care who you listen to or what your favorite show is besides this one, and someone's going to tell you something different. I'm telling you that if you are good management, sound management, flexible management, you find a way to be able to win that championship. No matter that the suites were sold and the seats were sold for years after the Bulls won their championships, the bottom line is is that there's nothing like a winning organization. And as soon as Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and those guys were gone, you knew that that was the end of an era. No matter how much... Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf loved Tony Kukoc. You know that he wasn't the guy. You know he wasn't going to be like the next coming of Michael Jordan, even though he was billed as such. Remember the, the in the documentary how Jerry Krause held up the number seven? Uh, uh, Tony Kukoc and this number seven is well known uh, internationally, so he is. Uh, it's a famous number, and he's a famous player trying to sell us on Tony Kukoc, and he was a, a really solid player for the Bulls. There's no doubt. He was part of the championship teams, but he was never going to be a guy that can replace the greatness that was the Chicago Bulls with Jordan and Pippen and even Dennis Rodman. Tony was a solid piece to the championship puzzle, not the piece to the championship puzzle. Last Dance, right here on ESPN 1000, the brand-new ESPN Chicago app as we do this, brought to you by Coors Light, the Last Dance Mondays as we do. So Jeff Dickerson and I... Got a chance to talk to Scoop Jackson from ESPN and ESPN.com. And we talked to him about this last dance documentary, The Bulls. And we started off and said, you know, Scoop is a longtime Chicago, and you've got to be able to, to be enjoying and reliving these 90s Bulls while watching The Last Dance. It is really good to uh, have <laughs> these type of flashbacks uh, to remind you of stuff of what you went through and being a part of the team. Uh, the one thing I can say to both of you all that I've said before, uh, it's diff- it has been difficult. I think I've gotten it down at this point. I think I, you know, but the first couple of episodes, maybe like the first four, excuse me, it was hard for me to separate myself from journalists and just, you know, go back into fan and just enjoy the last dance for what it is and what they want it to be as opposed to 
you know, being a journalist and looking for storylines inside here that you knew about, you know, and facts that, you know, weren't like really flushed out in the dance and trying to find where this went and where this is supposed to go and how come they didn't do this. And, you know, you, you, I had to find a way to remove myself from being a journalist and watching this. And it took about four episodes. <laughs> is there something in the documentary that you did not know about the Bulls and Jordan? Um, yeah. Uh, well, things I knew but really didn't know. Like, I had no idea how Kraut just walked into uh, Reinsdorf's office after having no professional experience in running anything, he came from a whole other sport as a scout and just walked up into his office and said, I want to be general manager and got the job. I'm like, who the hell does that happen to? There's nobody in this business I know that could do that. And that, But I never knew how that happened. And to see them speak to it in such a cavalier ma- manner, you know, I didn't know that. And that, that kind of blew my mind. Um, it, um, well, something I knew that I was surprised they didn't fully disclose is the whole Scotty Pippen situation and his contract and how for the life of his contract and a lot of the decisions he made, you know, uh, on the court, off the court, were connected to his contract to Tony Kukoc. And they never went in depth about how the money that Scotty made from 1991 when he signed that extension all the way to him leaving the Bulls, his money was always attached to Tony Kukoc and how that was connected and how it played a role and how things played out and them never dealing with that. Um that, you know, that, that stood out. Um, and the fact that they had, didn't highlight Tony Kukos just as a segment, the same way they did Rodman, same way, you know, they semi-did Steve Kerr, the same way they did Scottie Pippen. Um, and they didn't, like, really pay attention to highlight Ron Harper. You know, and it, we, but us being in Chicago, we knew how important their roles are on the back end of the last three that they got. Tony was a big-time deal, as, as was Ron Harper, and that stood out to me. Um, and it, that told me, to ask your question, Hood, about what I learned about the Bulls, of how they really viewed them in the larger scheme of things. Because <laughs> I thought they were important. But apparently to, you know, them, if you use the last dance as some barometer of how important people were, then to the Bulls organization and to Mike himself, they weren't as valuable as we made them out to be. You know, Scoop, Nowadays, in professional sports, we live in a world where access is just dwindling and dwindling and dwindling, and it's really hard to get to know a lot of these superstar players. What was it like, from your experience, covering Michael Jordan? What was that like? Uh, it was, I wouldn't say it was unique. It was, it was special in a way that you knew, and he reminded you at all times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were in the presence of somebody special. Um you know, I, I, and, and Michael, and that's the confidence that he walks into the room with. And he always reminds you and lets you know that he is Michael Jordan at all times. That's not a bad thing. That's not a knock. I'm not throwing shade at all. I think that when you get to that level and you've executed things the way that he has, you know, he has the right to know who he is and let you know who he is at all times. Um, covering him on that type of basis was interesting because you were able to develop a rapport with him. Um, and you got to really see if you dealt with him on an everyday basis and didn't walk up to him all the time wanting something from him, um, you were able to develop a relationship with him that lets you know how authentic he really was. Uh, and as much charm as he has and he could put on individuals, he was very, very real and very upfront. There was, there's not a lot of fakeness to Mike. There may be a lot of polish to him, but not a lot of fakeness. And I was able to build a media, you know, subject relationship with him that, you know, never, I don't think, was on any level of fakeness. So I got to see the authentic Mike. So covering him, from my standpoint, was always beautiful. And I didn't have the same relationship with him that a lot of other people did because I wasn't covering him every day, where um, a lot of the local media had to cover him every day. So they'd be in his face always asking questions where I could, like, pick and choose, and I could just stop by and, like, hey, just came by to say what's up. I don't want anything, not trying to cover a story, just saying what's up. And when you're able to do that every, you know, one out of ten times when somebody sees you as opposed to ten out of ten times somebody sees you, it creates a different environment. So covering Mike to me was was great. And I'll say this, being around him at the time, because I wasn't around him at the time that his father was murdered, but I was around him every day the time that his father, that the trial for his father's murder <clears throat> was in play. And um, 
I'll say this now, and I say I, I told him this then. The way he handled that was something I have never seen anybody handle anything in my life, ever. Because people talk about how the media was borderline, and they didn't use the word. I'm using disrespectful and uncaring. I would use another word. Uncaring to him at the time of father's death, they were more uncaring during the trial. And he handled it in a way that I told him, you're more man than I'll ever be. Because they really didn't give a damn about his connection to his father or his feelings to the situation and the questions they were, and the questions they were asking and the way they approached him and didn't give him any any space to breathe around that situation. They were they just get, didn't give a damn and he handled it above the fold, above the way anybody I thought should have handled it. And I gained a lot of respect for Michael. During that, and I was glad at that point in time to be able to cover him at that time because I saw somebody that, um, you know, was, was worthy of elevating the God status because it wasn't just about basketball. It wasn't about selling shoes. It wasn't about, you know, the quote-unquote Michael Jordan Inc. It was about a human being being civil when the people around him that were covering him had no civility at all. So, Scoop, when you were with Slam Magazine, obviously, as um, a reader of the magazine, uh, when you were covering him, you saw Michael Jordan in his early years leading into the championships. And there was a time where we saw Michael Jordan, like he is now, kind of commercialized, where everybody wants a piece of Michael Jordan, not just, you know, in Chicago, not just the United States, but a global icon. What's the difference in covering Michael Jordan during that time versus covering what was hot, what's next? Because that's what Slam was all about. To, to me, it was about what was the next athlete to come along and be able to learn his journey or her journey. Like, here's the thing, John, to be honest with you, man, is that we didn't start covering Michael until the back end of the three. The first three, we were in Slam didn't exist. And that's the funny story is that Dennis Page started Slam magazine and like a month like a couple of months, maybe five months, I forgot. I, I don't know the exact date, but like not too long after the magazine launched, Michael retired the first time. And as a publisher, that's like having your own, you know, COVID-19. <laughs> You're like, oh, my God, I started a magazine, and now basically the, the, the lead guy that's basically you know, that's carrying the whole NBA has now decided to retire. So, um you know, we didn't cover Mike. I, you know, I knew of Mike because I was around. But I didn't start covering him until the back end, the second three, once he came back from retirement. But I can tell you being around him before that, just as just being around him. And then being around him, to, you know, on a regular basis as an assignment, as a job, as a journalist, it wasn't really that much. He just became more proficient in how he presented himself. That's all. That's, that's all I really saw. He really continued to do the same things he was doing. Um, there were a lot more people involved, but he still controlled all the people that were around him. In the early days, it was easy access to get around Mike. You could walk up to him, you know, and once they won those first three championships, and he came back out of retirement, and he elevated himself during that 72-game season to, you know, that Michael Jackson status, you know, it, it, you started to have to go through more gatekeepers to get to him. But at the end of the day, he still had control over the gatekeepers. And you realize that he was building a brand to be on the level that transcended just the sport that he was playing. And you got to see that and you noticed that. But he was still the same him, man. He was still the same dude. He was still the same dude that, that would go behind with, with his knife. I mean, look, before he became Mike Mike that we knew, he would be behind the stadium and he'd be playing dice. That was, you know, he still like, he still be back there with whoever, you know, before he got in his car and he still played ass. And guess what? When he got the rings, when he got the Ferraris, when he got that, you know, Oprah status, he still go up behind the United Center. Yo, dice game, let's go. You know, <laughs> that's just how Mike <laughs> rolled, man. You know, so he really, really, really at the core never changed. I never really saw a change. Talking with Scoop Jackson on ESPN Radio. Um, what do you think of the way that they've presented Scottie Pippen throughout these episodes, Scoop? Mm, I think... How can I say fair and unfair? I, well, no, I won't say fair and unfair. I think they've treated Scotty fairly. But I think their storytelling of his story is incomplete at best. Um, there are so many things connected to Scotty, and they're just dealing with him on the, um, on the surface level. 
And I know, and from what I know and being there and covering Scotty, and I spent as much time covering Scotty as he did Michael. Because, like I said, when we entered the game, Michael had retired, so Scotty was the focal point. So we were able to slam magazine to build a relationship with him. And to Hood's, to Hood's point is make him out to be that story that's about Slam Magazine with Sports Illustrated and everybody else is on Michael. You know, we were dealing with the basketball side of things and the cultural side of things, and Scotty was essential. So we, we, we treated Scotty like he was Michael. You know, um, so we were able to develop a relationship. And to know all the things that went on then that are not being told in this documentary, um, I just look at it as incomplete. I think it's fair because they're not telling any lies. They're, not, they're just not telling the full story. You know, they're not telling his full story and explaining it in a way that would make sense, a little more sense to the viewer who may be just gauging and having what is presented to them as all the facts. You know, and I, is it unfair? No, but, you know, and, and could it be told better? Yeah, especially when you have, you know, uh, 10 hours to do it and you can find time to do that. But from my standpoint, it opens up the door for them to of somebody maybe us or whoever, it opens the door for Scottie Pippen to have his own documentary told and done and completed. And, you know, the, the, the back stories of the stories that they're telling on the surface here in the last dance could be flushed out. And, uh, and a lot of the viewers and the public be like, oh, I didn't know that. You know, like the fact that, you know, Ryan's was saying on camera, I told Scottie not to sign that contract. You know, well, two, talk about the contract you put into his face that you wanted him to sign. You know, and second to that, Let's talk about the timeline and how Tony Kukoc, you all put the contract in front of his face to save $2 million so you can get Kukoc over here. You know, talk about, you know, we can go deep, deep, deep into this as part of the stories that are not being told. Talk about the fact that when he said he wanted to sit out the 1.8 one, the 1. seconds, that one, the Bulls were never in jeopardy of losing that game. It was tied. So a worst-case scenario, it was going into overtime. Talk about the fact that during that season, you asked him to be Michael Jordan, and he was Michael Jordan. The year Michael retired, they won 57 games. The year after that, Scotty carried them to 55 games. Look at Detroit when Isaiah left. Look at Boston when Bird left. Look at L.A. when Magic left. How all those teams the next year fell apart, but Scotty kept this thing afloat. And you ask him to be Michael Jordan. He does something that hasn't been done in 20 years in the NBA where he led one team in seven statistical categories. And when it's on the line, it's not about you asking him to take the ball out. You took him out of the entire play. Something you would never do to Mike, and the dude that you that got in the game because you saved money for my contract. That when he came in, you're paying more than me. You're gonna give him the ball, the Tony Kukoc thing. Hell no, I'm sitting out. So I'm saying that I know that part of the story, and that's all connected, and that's all truth to the story. So if you're gonna tell that part of the story and make him look like he's selfish in this, that, and the other, then tell the whole story so that it makes sense. Tell the complete story. So, you know, like I said, I understand and think they're treating Scotty fairly. I just think they're very, being very incomplete in telling the nuances of his stories, of his story they, de they are deciding to tell. All right, you're hired. When's it coming out? 2021? <laughs> when are you going to produce it? <laughs> <laughs> Scoop, you're the best, man. We love having you on. We're glad you're doing well. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and we'll be in touch soon, okay? Anytime, fellas. Thanks for having me on. Talk to y'all soon. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. How you doing? Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Full show tomorrow between 7 and 10 here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. We're going to hear from Nick Friedel, who covers the NBA. We always talk to him every Monday at 9.30. We get a chance to talk about the last dance together. Hope that you enjoy our conversation. We're going to have that coming up at 9.30 right here on ESPN 1000. Uh, a couple of Bears notes. We're going to take just a little bit of a break from the last dance and get back right back into it another seven or eight minutes. Um, just a, a sad news story coming across regarding uh, Michael McCaskey over the weekend. Now, Michael McCaskey who led the Bears for nearly three decades following the death of his grandfather, George Hallis, died on Saturday after a lengthy battle with cancer. I had no idea that he had cancer. And now we hadn't heard from him in quite a while. He died at an age 76. And so McCaskey's past is interesting with the, with the Chicago Bears because I remember 
his lone interview on sports radio was with Mike North and Dan Jiggets. I remember, you know, kind of like how we look at the Bulls now, say, hey, the Bulls should have another chance for the championship. Well, in 92-93, after the Bears won their Super Bowl in 85, there was still some old older Chicago Bears from the 85 team that was still on some of those early 90s Bears teams. And all of a sudden, Jay Hilgenberg and Jimbo Covert, some of these other guys were just gone in the early 90s as the Bears were trying to change um, their momentum. After the years of Ditka, they were looking to do something different. That's why they hired Dave Wanstead. I just remember Mike North, you know, maybe a year out of um, his time with the, on the hot dog stand, being part of sports radio after about a year or two, and he just came in unvarnished, out of the box, just like had Michael McCaskey on and said, hey, why did you get rid of some of those uh, old Chicago Bears? Why did you get rid of Jay Hilgenberg? And I just remember Michael McCaskey says, well, say something else that's really silly, and like McCaskey hanging up on, on North and Jiggets back then. Um, but McCaskey is, is interesting because um, – He's just a guy there that took the brunt of a lot of the frustration, especially um, from Bears fans, especially after Ditka was let go. Um, but uh, rest in peace, Michael McCaskey, the, the former chairman, passing away at age 76. That's just an amazing story. And I understand that um, the head coach for this current Bears team was on, Matt Nagy. And we'll have more to say about this on tomorrow's show. But Matt Nagy was on Waddle and Sylvie. And um, as you and I have talked about a lot with the Bears, you just don't understand why you don't run the football more, right? And it seemed like in the middle to the end of the season, there was more of an emphasis running the football. When you have an offense, you have to be able to empty the tank if you can offensively to try to get Trubisky and the offense going. Uh, the question is, uh, is he mad at himself for not running the football more? First of all, the thing that I that I really appreciate that you just started that off with is that you were honest and you're able to say that. You know, I I appreciate that. I don't think there's enough of that that goes on in this world. So, thank you for being honest. Number two, is is our yeah, I did start there because you know you have to be able to run the football in this league to win. You have to, and but you also need to throw the football. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance there, and every game is different. There's some games where the matchup just isn't good, and as much as we want to look at the fantasy stats and say, I, my guy needs 30 carries, that's just not going to happen because they got a better defensive line or they have you know, nine guys in the box. That's how that goes. And so that's the, that's the beauty of coaching. That's the beauty of the scheming part. Well, we need to be better there. I need to be better there. Uh, the other part of it, too, is, is just for us to say, step back and say, okay, if we're going to run the ball, how are we going to do it? And that's what I think has been fun for us here in the off season is trying to understand, is it by personnel, right? Is it, and then if it is, what is it and who is it? And then number two is, okay, if, if that's obviously something that we've made changes on this off season, now is it by scheme? Maybe, maybe not, okay? And so now you put that together, and now all of a sudden um, it's a lot easier to call run plays when they're productive. And so you have to stay balanced. And but running the ball, I totally understand what you're saying, and totally understand your frustration. And and uh, trust me, I, I know you know being a quarterback guy and wanting to throw the ball and, and all that. I you know you get labeled with that, but I'm all about running it, and and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing us uh, get better in that area this year. Hmm. Interesting. Um... About face by Matt Nagy. You sure it's not about fantasy numbers, as he mentioned a couple of years ago regarding running the football. Nick Friedel on the Last Dance documentary brought to you by Coors Light is next. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app, The Last Dance. The final two episodes are just off the hook. What a great documentary, one of the best that I've ever seen. As we turn to Nick Friedel, who covers the NBA for ESPN and ESPN.com. He's with us every Monday to give his review uh, of The Last Dance. Hello, Nick. Hello, my man. Boy, that what a great documentary. Out of all everything that you've watched, where's The Last Dance amongst them? Uh, it is really high up there, Hoodie. I still... Uh, think as far as the best documentaries ever everything is judged against oj made in america i thought that was extraordinarily well done but as a fan 
And as somebody who watched those Jordan Bulls teams as a kid, to go back in time and learn more about how that team came together and uh, the trials and tribulations that that group went together, uh, went through together uh, with MJ, to see it all come out like that uh, was pretty cool, especially given the circumstances uh, that we're all in in the world right now. Uh, I tell you what, 9 and 10 were really interesting to me. I, I want to get your thoughts on just the, what you saw, the highlights of it. First of all, talking about Michael Jordan's inner circle. Interesting that his inner circle were not necessarily former players, but his inner circle was the security team, father figures that were around him for decades with the Bulls. That really stood out to me as far as even with all the hype and the basketball and the bravado, he still had um, a circle of guys that were father figures to him and that he can call on any time. Hoodie, it's so interesting because I kept thinking back to that old Charles Barkley quote. He says, I know a lot of people, but I don't have a lot of friends. For close friends that I can trust with anything. And I thought that was... That was one of the most telling things in the documentary to me. To your point, uh, George Kohler, uh, the, the guy who picked uh, MJ up that first day, his driver, it says on the graphic in the documentary, uh, best friend. <laughs> and you're thinking, how much time have they spent together? How many moments have they shared? You, you hear about the security guards. You hear about the police officers that Michael was close to. It was so obvious over time watching this thing and knowing what we knew before that inner, inner circle is so small. And there's such a small amount of people that he really trusts and allows in. And when you are that famous and when you live on that kind of stage under that kind of microscope day after day after day, it makes sense because you need people that you know you can trust with anything. And uh, I thought that part of the doc was really uh, well told and how they brought together the story of so many people uh, that he uh, that he really, really trusted. I mean, it, the group was very small, but the loyalty that he had to those people, people you wouldn't expect, people that... Uh, you wouldn't think he would share that kind of relationship. It was very strong, and it, and it endured over time. So it, it's interesting when you have a documentary, and I know that the Bulls were filming everything during that last year. It's amazing how the camera uh, was able to catch Gus Lett on the bench, right? And then also uh, him having the microphone, being able to talk about the Bulls, talk about Michael Jordan. It's just interesting how this all comes together. Uh, were Gus Slett, and we come to find out from Rachel Nichols that it was later revealed that Michael Jordan paid for Gus Slett's medical expenses because of the illness that he suffered with. That's that's a pretty special story. No doubt, no doubt. And and hoodie, that's the thing. You, you, there are so many people who are learning about MJ for the first time, and maybe they're learning stories about him even if they watched him. The one thing you have always heard about Michael Jordan. And this speaks to the part about keeping those close that he trusts. It's that he is incredibly loyal. Uh, I think, uh, again, going back to Barkley and, and other people around the league, that's why they don't think that Michael has done as well as an owner of the Charlotte franchise as he could because he's been loyal to people who have been loyal to him over time. But the story of Gus Lett and him being there uh, for Jordan over and over again, especially in the wake of his father passing, it just goes to show you that once you you sh you prove to him, you show him to Michael that that you're going to be there through the good and the bad, whenever he needs, he will show that loyalty back to you. Uh, and no matter what you think of some of the stuff that came out in the documentary. That part resonated to me because uh, that loyalty has defined who he is over time, and it shows you uh, part of the person that he became on and off the floor. Nick Friedel covers the NBA for ESPN and ESPN.com. Joining me, Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood for Last Dance Mondays, brought to you by Coors Light on ESPN 1000. Let's talk about the Pacers just for a second. Um, so... First of all, it was interesting, 9 and 10, and I understand that all the way up to this week, Nick, that's when it was all done, right? It was all squared away this week. 
um, for it to be um, filmed and taped and ready to go for ESPN. But I thought it was interesting how they it was ping-ponging back between the Jazz and the Pacers series, almost to give us the the notion that the Pacers series was more uh, important, definitely di- more difficult, right? No doubt. No doubt. And that was very clear, Hoodie. As they as they talked about that Pacers series, you're thinking, all right, this could be it. <laughs> it was like the Jazz <laughs> were, were almost an afterthought, uh, a respected afterthought, but an afterthought because the Bulls thought, all right, we get by the Pacers. <laughs> jazz are, uh, the Jazz are, are pretty much done. So to see that story uh, unearth itself again, to remember that Michael said, we're going to win. And he never had a doubt. But in the fourth quarter, I thought Kerr's uh, comments were very, very telling in that, hey, I started having those thoughts. Is is this the end? Is that it for us? Because that that Indiana team was so solid, and they had Reggie Miller. And I I, I thought it, it was very interesting. Reggie saying, you know, I didn't fear Michael. Okay, but, but to come out and say, well, we still thought we were the better team, well... <laughs> Who won the series? Right. And and in the end, that's all that that is all that matters. That's why Michael Jordan's legacy is what it is. You're six and zero in the finals. You never went to a game seven in the finals. You can say what you believe is Reggie Miller. He can have his opinion. Absolutely, he has a right to that. But the team that <laughs> the team that's better finds a way to win the series. Uh, that that is ultimately the last laugh. But I I'm with you. Uh, when you're looking back in time and you're hearing about how difficult that series was, I think the mental relief, the burden that they got over by beating Indiana the way in which they did gave them the confidence to say, okay, nobody's knocking us down now. The the Pacers, and you can speak to this as far as covering games at Banker's Life, when the Pacers are right, that's one of the loudest um, – fan bases in the league. I know it was for Barkett Square. You can see how rabid that fan base was because basketball means so much in the state of Indiana, but either Market Square or Banker's Life, that's that's got to be one of the loudest places that you've uh, covered a game, right? No doubt. No doubt. Uh, and it's a point that gets lost on a lot of fans, Hoodie, and <laughs> you, all you have to do is go back and watch those old, not only the Bulls games from years gone by, but those old Knicks Pacers games. <laughs> Gosh, just crazy. That is a city that loves basketball uh, completely. Uh, and you, 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 get, you, you forget over time uh, just how good those teams are and, and just how good that atmosphere can be. Uh, but to see in that moment uh, just how excited the city was and, and just how close they got. Uh, it, it is, it, and you hear it from a lot of players, when that team is really good and that arena is packed, whether it was Market Square or now Banker's Life, there are only a handful of spots that are louder uh, in, in the entire league, and, and that fan base just is is crazy when that team is is getting close to the top. Michael Jordan was very concerned before the documentary on how he'd come across. So now that we've seen all 10 episodes, how do you feel about Michael now versus before you saw uh, Michael before the documentary? The honest answer is I think he's more of an a-hole than I thought before. And and I had heard some of the stories how he pushed uh, all his teammates and, and what drove him. But in the end, and this this ties back into <laughs> the part about uh, getting the final say when you win. Michael carried himself the way he did, but he will always have the last laugh because he found a way to win when the games mattered the most. And he did it over and over and over again. To me, my biggest takeaway from watching last night was uh, that moment when they're talking about now the food poisoning uh, game uh, when he was curled up in the ball on the floor after he ate the pizza and he was sick. And he found a way the next night to not only play, but lift them to victory. I mean, he couldn't even sit up straight in the chair. You find ways to raise your game when the people around you 
need it the most. And Scotty has gotten crushed throughout uh, this documentary for uh, several reasons. And people have refocused again on that uh, Tony Kukoc moment when he sat on the bench. And and it will always be part of his legacy. But I'd add this, Buddy, and I had forgotten because I was you know, 12, 13 years old. I'd forgotten how bad his back was messed up. Uh, at the end of that last series in Utah, and he gutted it out because he wanted to win a title. He wanted to be there. I think, obviously, he had learned uh, from from his mistakes in the past. But when you have that kind of level of buying in in a team sport in, in any way when you're around other people and they're depending on you, to find that kind of focus when things aren't right, whether you're sick, whether you're hurt, whatever it is, to raise your game at that point and to, to rally everybody else around you is a pretty special quality. Let's dig into the pizza thing for a second. So, okay, so I, and I know you have as well, when the kitchen is closed in the hotel, <laughs> you will look through the yellow pages or go on your phone and try to find a place that's open. Recently for me in Detroit, that happened where there was, I couldn't, the place was closed, uh, the, the kitchen was closed at the hotel. So you kind of dig through and you find a late night place and they bring it to you. Now, I never had five guys bring me food, but I've had one guy at least bring me food at 12, 1230 in the morning when you're doing late night prep or whatever. Um, but here's a, the, the thing that is lost on this, Nick, is is that the Marriott clearly was the Bulls Hotel in Salt Lake. And so whoever was going to get that pizza, I don't think it said Jordan, comma, Michael, he's the one supposed to get the pizza. He was just like, hey, somebody wants pizza and it's going to be under, you know, maybe one of his entourage. I don't know. But I don't Tim think Grover. Tim, right. yeah, Grover, Grover, comma, Tim. It's, it's, it's his pizza, right? <laughs> but whatever it is, whoever was going to get that pizza was going to get poisoned. It just happened to be Michael, and that's the thing I think that's unfortunate. The, the, the pizzeria place knew it was the Bulls Hotel, so they didn't care who was going to get it. They just want to make somebody sick from the Bulls. Right, right. That that's the that's what you take away in that moment, hoodie, and and the the real story. If there's more details to it, I, who knows? Uh, and I, I would hope that the pizzeria owner comes out at some point and, and sets the record straight from their end. But that's what it what it always sounded like, and now we have even more details. Uh, but, <laughs> look, that's a hazard of of working the kind of jobs that, that we work. That, that part, uh, feeling hungry when there's not many places to eat in in a town, <laughs> that, that certainly resonated again for me because I'm sitting there going, how many nights... Are you sitting somewhere that you don't know and you're just starved and you need something and you call up some pizza joint uh, and you think, all right, I, I, I need something so bad that I'll eat whatever, whatever they got. And it, it just so happened that it was Michael Jordan's pizza. <laughs> the craziest part to me is that there were five guys who showed showed up they yeah. just wanted a peek they wanted <laughs> they wanted some kind of connection to whoever uh, they could get and it just so happened that that pizza was going to uh, the the greatest player of all time and and you know now we have this historical footnote but yeah park city i think is where they were uh, i i can't imagine at this point hoodie in time in 2020 no matter where any nba team would go that they wouldn't have access to some five-star room service when they needed it, but uh, to show you just how much the game has changed and grown 22, 23 years later, it's that Michael Jordan didn't call out for (laughs) for pizzas anymore when he when he needs when he needs a fix late at night. The other thing is too that we got to mention. I don't know if this is the way for you, but anytime I've had to have late night service, I come down to the lobby. They don't come to my room because because actually the good hotels would not allow someone to be able to you know hit the elevator and go to a certain floor. I don't know if that's happened for you, but for me, like no, I'll meet you in the lobby and I'll bring you your money there. But to yeah, be able you're to, not telling them you're in room six ten. No, I mean. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. They don't walk to your door. At least that's what. No I, that's what I think. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. That, that, there are so <laughs> many things about that story that I'm sure will come out even more over time. Uh, but for Michael Jordan, of all people, to get food poisoning at some pizza shop in Utah the game before the finals and still deliver the way he did, I mean, it just, it, you know, it, it just adds to the legacy. He found a way. <laughs> and I'm sure. Can you imagine being in, in Park City, Utah now, any pizza shop? You're like, I'm never eating this stuff. Michael got sick. I'm not running the risk here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's amazing. Nick Friedel with me here on ESPN 1000, the ESPN Chicago app. So my last dance, the last dance Mondays brought to you by Coors Light. So w- one of the major takeaways I, I get from this is something that you and I already knew. And that's just how much Kraus and Reinsdorf just permeates all throughout this documentary. And, and I, I said it earlier and I'll say it again, Nick. Whether it's the Lakers run, when when the Bulls won their first championship, when it ended right there, the Celtics, when they ended their run, taking on a good Hornets team or some of the teams they took on, the, I'm talking about the McHale, Parrish, Bird um, Celtics. Whether it's the Spurs, the Pistons, uh, the Rockets, whomever, you allow it until the wheels to fall off. You, uh, you, continue, you continue to let that run go. I just think that the narrative that's out there, and I understand there's a lot of hot takers that need to be opposite just so they get clicks and calls and interest. But I, I'm just never going to be that show because I'll always be the one that will always tell the truth. And the truth is, is that Kraus and Reinsdorf cut this championship run off at the knees because of ego. And the other thing is, is that as we saw in the Floyd era, the the money was already there. That as far as the, the suites and the ticket sales, that place is still full and still does well attendance-wise because of the Jordan years. So for generations, the Bulls have done fine financially, uh, and so they chose the money and the finances over having at least one more run at this thing. Imagine a, a rested, locked-out season in which is 50 games plus the playoffs and the Bulls at least having a chance for the seventh run. I think they, the Bulls organization owed it to the players to have at least one more run at this thing, and they took it away from them. Hoodie, I, I agree with you completely. And uh, uh, our colleague, uh, Ramona Shelburne, wrote a really nice story uh, today on ESPN.com, she talked to Jerry Reinsdorf, and Jerry Reinsdorf made it clear, hey, Michael cut his hand very badly with the cigar cutter, uh, and we don't know if he even would have been able to play that year. Uh, and, you know, the the finances, he, he talked about it in the documentary, he wasn't going to pay Steve Kerr and Judd Bushler uh, and Luke Longley these huge deals because he didn't think he'd get the return on uh, the investment. And everybody's going to have a different point of view from where they stand on why this this couldn't have worked or, or why they should have given it another chance. But, Hoodie, the issue to me is exactly what you said. When you win at that level in pro sports, you should be given the chance to have somebody take the crown away from you. And those bulls were never given that chance. Uh, now, in the end, did, did that help them as far as legacy goes? I, I saw Bob Costas make that point uh, on a show. Does the fact that the bulls never lost and that Michael was dominant in the finals help in the long haul even more? Maybe, maybe so. But uh, the issue for the bulls is that from that point in time, before that point in time, we're going on three decades now. The issue has been, the perception has been that they care more about the money than they do about uh, the wins. And that is something that they have had to fight against time and time and time again. And Hoodie, that to me, <laughs> this underscores uh, a lot of what we've seen within the organization for years and years and years. The optics matter. And I think finally, uh, Mike Reinsdorf, uh, Jerry's son, I think he's seen that. I think that's why uh, bringing it uh, to present day, that's fa- why he finally made the changes that he did with the front office uh, and the structure uh, after years and years of Garm Pax. But 
the optics on this stuff matter, and that's why Jerry Reinsdorf, for, for as proud as he should be, and Jerry Krause, uh, his legacy will always be that he built these teams. Part of that legacy is they didn't allow them the chance. They didn't find some way. What I kept coming back to is, uh, and, and in reading so much uh, in the aftermath of the documentary, there is so much talk about, well, Michael only wanted to play for Phil, and Jerry Krause and Phil's relationship was just busted, uh, and it couldn't be fixed. There's got to be a way. There's yes. always a way to make things better. When you're in a position of power like Jerry Reinsdorf was and is, you you don't let them out of the room until you say, hey, we want to try this one more time. Uh, we want this to work one more time. What can we do on both sides to make this better? And, and Phil Jackson still could have tried to walk away, but to not allow them that opportunity, that will always be something that's talked about because we just don't see it that often. I mean, that's the other part, Hoodie. So often with these legacies, uh, we've seen it re in recent times with the Heat, with the Warriors. They get to that stage, and they don't win. And somebody else beats them. And in the grand scheme of, of story making, again, is it better for the Bulls? Uh, maybe. Maybe people look at them differently. But uh, they never got that chance. And I, I understand what Jordan was saying. When he was talking about, uh, we, we deserved it because any champion wants to go out fighting. They don't want to be broken up by something that's out of their control. It's high, it's a hypothetical now, but it's something to think about. And that is, Nick, would you prefer Michael and Scotty and Phil as your core with other role players in a shortened season against San Antonio rather than a eighth seed Knicks team out of the Eastern Conference that was able to win the, the Eastern Conference championship. I, I'm going to roll with Michael and Scotty and a, and a new core, a fresh core if you had to, over a Knicks team that was the eighth seed that went into the finals. Absolutely. You can't bet against Michael and Scotty hoodie after, after all the time that that they've won together. The issue to me on top of Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause uh, finding some way, now that we're in uh, dreamland after this documentary, of finding some way to fix their relationship, the 1A of whether this would ever work or not was how in the world were they, they going to make it right for Scottie Pippen? Because Scottie wanted to get paid. He felt like he had been underpaid for years and years and years. And Scotty wanted that big money that he got uh, in Houston. And I'm not sure how that works either. But, but Hoodie, this speaks exactly to what you're saying. When you're the Bulls and you've won at that level year after year, you can't tell me. <laughs> they're watching that, that, that finals that year in the lockout. They're going, we get through this Knicks team. Come on. No problem. And then, uh, you know, Tim Duncan, he, he's, he's going to be great, but it's, his time is not now. So it'll always be one of those what if questions. Uh, but if you're a former player on that team watching this, I'm sure that really, really gnaws at you because you never got the chance to know for sure. And maybe the Spurs would have stopped them. Maybe we ended right there, but but you know what? You didn't give us a chance to know, and and you know for Pippen, yeah, that is a question mark on how that would have worked. But whatever it would have been, if he stayed for a year, you paid him. Save you paid him, and he stayed for a year. You traded him after that, you know, after the '99 season. Uh, you probably get a better deal than what they got for him in trading him to the Rockets for Roy Rogers and Jig Foskell. <laughs> is that what it was? Yeah, it was. Oh. Yeah, you went to the rock. It was a sign and trade, and that's where you know really Pippen was able to get paid well by the Bulls. It was sign and trade, and so Roy Rogers, who became an assistant coach and a and a second round pick uh, in the two thousand NBA draft, the second round pick was Jake Vosco. That's what you got for Scottie Pippen. Now that's the sleuth right there. There's a genius. Uh, and this is where this is, and again, a Bulls fan supposed to trust Jerry Krause, and this is the best deal you can get for Scottie Pippen, a top fifty player. There you go. There's your sleuth right there. There it is. Anyway, so I cried last night 
Uh, and which part? Well, Steve Kerr. And I, yep. need, I need to talk to you about this because this is a guy that you cover and his team. It's it, it, with, with each of these stories, these big overarching stories, Nick, we know the stories, but it's good when it's delved into and you can really able to get the layers of the story. We don't understand what happened with Steve Kerr and his father. It's just, um, it, it's, I don't know, it, it, it hit me funny because even though we knew the story about his dad and being root and how he was murdered, just to see Steve talk about it and then how basketball helped him through it playing basketball the next day and he said I didn't know how to, to get through it outside of playing basketball and then hitting one of the key game winning shots for the Bulls the the floodgates came down it just hit me funny because it just like all of a sudden became the Steve Kerr documentary for about 10 minutes yeah uh, you and me both <laughs> you, you and me both uh as I watched, I think what hit me just as hard as Steve's reaction and in seeing those old news reports, I mean, it's just awful, uh, was the interview with his mom. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm watching that going, oh, my gosh, I, you know, because you, you just you realize when you go through something that is that tragic and that sudden, how much everything changes in an instant. And he's talking about, there was that scene where he's talking about a family friend is calling me at three in the morning in my college dorm and I knew something uh, wasn't right. I, I think that anybody, uh, anybody can feel that. Anybody can empathize with just how sad and traumatic that can be. And, and it's a credit to Steve and his family that they found a way to continue on. He didn't let the loss of his dad in just the most awful of ways define what he was going to do and become later on. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm with you completely. I watched that, and you're, you're so used to seeing uh, the Michael stories and you know what was happening on the floor. But then to have that just kind of pop out seemingly out of nowhere, you're going, whoa. Uh, that, you know, everybody's got a story. Uh, and everybody deals with lots of stuff, and, and some you see and some you don't, Hoodie. And I think what this documentary did in a lot of ways, not just for Michael Jordan, but it humanized all these different guys and all these different characters in this, uh, this play that we've watched for years and years and years. And I, you know, I, I think that that's what fans forget sometimes. And, and as somebody who grew up watching these guys, I, I certainly... Uh, forgotten, didn't understand. They're human beings. They are human beings. Everybody goes through and processes stuff differently. And, and that story specifically with Steve Kerr and, and his family and what they had to overcome, uh, that was a reminder of all of that for me. How can this documentary help the Charlotte Hornets? <laughs> Honestly, I don't think it can. For all the reasons we described, for the last five weeks here about Jordan being this ruthless competitor and Jordan being the guy who uh, who wanted to surround himself with people he trusted uh, it, it's been made pretty clear hoodie what what Michael's flaw is as an owner it's pretty obvious when you watch the documentary I mean truly it, when, when you watch this thing you realize that he's got that small circle of people that he trusts and he doesn't like when people come up uh, and try to tell him things differently because he's done it his way. And his way as a player earned him six rings and the moniker by many as the greatest of all time. Uh, but as an owner, as an owner, you have got to listen to other voices. And you have got to get input from people who are going to not only disagree with you, but who are going to tell you that you are wrong sometimes. Uh, and the more you listen to the people who know Michael best, uh, and it's not just a Charles Barkley thing, you, you hear it around the league, the more you understand why he has failed up to this point as an owner. Uh, because Michael Jordan is the greatest competitor we've probably ever seen uh, as a player in the league. And it's not that he stopped being competitive now. It's just I don't think he's listening to the people that can help him the most and when you see how that team has been run and when you see the lack of success they've had uh, during his ownership run it makes sense in that regard and until he changes uh, the structure around him I don't think much is going to change at all 
lastly, Nick, and I appreciate your time, you see the leadership quality of Michael Jordan. And so I'm wondering whether or not that works today in 2020 with athletes that you cover, because we're in a whole different area now with social media. Uh, uh, everyone's sensitivity is heightened um, for, for different people, different levels. People are more sensitive uh, than others. Um, so what do you think that that Jordan type leadership, how does that work in 2020? I, I don't think it does, honestly, buddy. And it, that's almost tough for me to acknowledge because Michael Jordan, again, as a kid growing up, that was the guy you put on the pedestal. He's the best. He could do no wrong. Why I say that is because my perspective comes from somebody who has not only watched the game my whole life, but who has now covered the league for 12, 13 years. And the, the reason I say it is because you're watching that documentary and you're seeing stuff behind the scenes where he is just shredding Scott Burrell. I mean, he's on the blank. He's punching Kurt. We see all these episodes pop up. That could not work in 2020 because for as much stuff as teams still try to keep private, there is way too much stuff that goes public. And somebody would start talking uh, in the moment and say, you know, Michael's a bully. <laughs> Michael is a jerk. Uh, those stories would pop up now uh, because that's the, the world in which we live. There's so many more uh, platforms to do so. Uh, you can't tell me that one of those players who was mad at Michael Jordan back in the day wouldn't have logged on to Twitter <laughs> or, or popped off on some Instagram post and clicked and uh, the perception would have changed in the moment. So at, for as great of a player as Michael is, and again, to me, he's the best that's ever done it, the leadership style would not have worked because the world in which we live is much different uh, and much more cautious than it was 22 years ago when all of this stuff was happening. Uh, lastly, Nick, could you say a few words for the late Ditka's restaurant? Ditka's has uh, has closed on uh, Chestnut Street. I spent so much time there broadcasting and, of course, having a great meal there. And you know that place intimately. Hoodie, there is not a restaurant in Chicago when I was there that I spent more, more money and time in. Uh, than Ditka's. The staff was always great to me. Uh, it, it was right across the street from <laughs> my old building. I mean, I would go in there sometimes twice a day and they'd be like, hey, how's it going? Uh, to to <laughs> see that news today was just really, really sad. And it's a reminder to me of just how how bad a spot we're all in right now. And, and Ditka's isn't the first restaurant uh, two of clothes won't be the last, but to me, that was that was home. I used to, I always used to joke with people that that, that was my kitchen because <laughs> I don't cook. <laughs> I mean, I I I, I don't uh, don't usually have the time or or know what I'm doing enough to know to put some meal together. So I would call down to Ditka's, go pick up dinner, and and walk back home and eat it. So. Uh, my best goes out to all the, the people I knew there over time. Uh, my pal Carlos, who, who waited on me uh, for years and years. There are a lot of great people that they'll find their way uh, because they're really good at what they do. But that, that is a sad, sad thing for me because that was the restaurant, uh, that and Joe's, that defined my time in Chicago. Yeah, love that place. My wife and I uh, was there for a... New Year's Eve, like, you know, 8 o'clock before we went out, had a nice dinner there at Ditka's and just kind of looking out at the snow falling and kind of looking out. And all of a sudden, there's Norm Van Leer. And he's just, oh, there we go. He's, he's in a trench coat. And he's got his face pressed against the window. He sees me. He goes, honey, honey, what's going on there? And I said, uh oh. And I just, I just, I just wave him in. Come on, Norm. Do, 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 do. And he just comes oh. in. And so he comes in and just pulls up a chair. <laughs> it wasn't even a, it was, it was a, just a two seats, you know, for a, a, for oh a table. He just pulled up a third side, you know, side sitting. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean that, but that was, but one of the coolest parts about that place was that you never know who you could see. No, there was always somebody in there and you thought, all right, this, this is pretty sweet. I mean, but again, like that, that 
<laughs> it's the relationships. As you were telling your North story, I'm thinking of one of the first times that I, I must have gone on the jump and I had flown out to L.A. And I came back and, and Carlos was telling me that uh, a couple of the, the cooks in the back were like, hey, man, uh, that's the mini cheeseburger with no pickle guy. <laughs> that's the guy who comes in here all the time and orders that stuff. Like, that's cool. And I, I mean, that I, I just that put a huge smile on my face because... Uh, when you when you go to certain places, you feel a certain way, and uh, you, you just feel good about what's going on. And, and for me, and I know for you, that place was Ditkus. Yeah, love that place. So sad to see it go. Well, well, there it is, my friend. Our wrap up of the Last Dance, and uh, next week we will uh, break down uh, Sosa McGuire and get your thoughts. <laughs> to, oh, and also, man, Lance. I, hey, I've, I actually I got lots of thoughts on that one. Uh, yeah. So we can we can get into that when the time comes. But I want to tell you, I, I really enjoyed that you had me on the show after all these because, you know, it, it, it did. It brought back a ton of memories for me in my time covering the Bulls. It made me think last night what would have been different if Derek hadn't gotten hurt. Would they have won? You'll, you'll never know. But you have an appreciation watching this for how difficult it is to stay on top for years at a time. And no matter what happens from here on out, the city will always have the fact that Michael and Scotty and Phil, that group won six titles. And that was pretty cool to relive. So uh, I appreciate you uh, taking me down memory lane and, and having me be a part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And if Derek and the Bulls came close, you know the Bulls would have unplugged that dynasty as well. All right, so... <laughs> I appreciate it as always, my friend. Thank you. All right, you got it. Nick Friedel with us, breaking down the last dance, brought to you by Coors Light. Full show tomorrow between 7 and 10 right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Thank you, Eric. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.